everyone and welcome to The Neuromantics. This is Season 2, Episode 5, Tier 4. <laughs> in case you're in any doubt. And the Neuromantics is a podcast that looks at research in neurosciences and psychology and the literary arts and sees what the two cultures, what science and literature and creative art, have to say to each other. And I am Will Eves and I'm a novelist and poet and my co-host is... Sophie Scott and I'm a cognitive neuroscientist so I'm interested in brains and particularly in human communication. This month we're looking again uh, mm. at um, the later years in life and cognitive abilities in our 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, even 11th decades. A very interesting little bit of news from psychology today on that and three essays by Michel de Montaigne. Sophie, I wondered if you wanted to say a little bit about the um, scientific research first. So the scientific research paper, and I realise I have kept coming back to this topic and it's probably because, you know, of, of many different events have sort of made me think more about lifespans and brains and how we, how we change over our lives and how our brains change. This is a paper specifically asking a question about, I want a better phrase, very, very old people who have um, what people used to say have kept their faculties. So they may be a little slowed by age, but they're not showing any sign of dementia. And dementia is a very broad term. It doesn't mean only one thing, dementia. But normally what we mean when we're talking about dementia is something that is a progressive disorder. It might be very general. It might be very focal in its effects. And the older we get... The odds of that being something that we might happen to us just start to increase fairly rapidly after the age of 80. You know, the odds are not great. Obviously, lots of other things influence that. So these are an interesting group of people because they're all nearly 100. They're in their 90s and they are cognitively intact. And they're an interesting group of people to study. And what they've done here is they've, you know, they've asked the question about brain structure because that's that's what my, my people do. Um, and they do find some things that seem to be different in these people's brains. So it's this, the news article that you sent me through is from Psychology Today, and it's, it's called How Some People Stay Sharp Even After Turning 95. And it's predicated on a longer research paper um, by a group of Australian academics and psychologists. And what they find, correct me if I'm wrong, Sophie, is that there is greater correspondence between left and right frontal parietal um, yes. networks in this group of extremely elderly people. And this is interesting because it doesn't seem to be just the case that these are people who have preserved their faculties, um, to use your words, but who actually, the research shows, have a marked increase in connectivity at this extremely late age. Mm. And I think that's what the, that's what the research is trying to puzzle out. At the same time, um, there seems to be a decrease in connectivity in what the scientists call the default network mode, which I think I'm going to need you to explain to me, but it yeah. seems to have something to do with that sense of, you know, background cognitive reserve that um, we somewhat take for granted. I don't know whether I've interpreted that correctly or no, not. No, I think you're, you're pretty much on the money. And it's, 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 a, very, it's a very interesting approach because it's something that I can remember people started doing this a couple of decades ago and I thought, why does anyone do this? It seems crazy. So I, when I was first doing brain imaging in the 90s, young man, let me tell you how it was. But, you know, <laughs> it was like the same age, Sophie. <laughs> no, well, I'm older than you. So the, 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 we'd had like the ability to start taking good anatomical images of the brain started to happen sort of through the you know 80s really and the big change was the end of the 80s and the early 90s where people were able to then kind of by tweaking these a little bit start asking questions about function in the brain and the way that they did that would be trying to compare because you can never get a kind of ground zero for brain activity or always comparing brain activity across different conditions and so what people would do would be sort of say well 
you know, to take one of my studies for experience, you know, for instance, you'd hear someone, here's one condition would be someone listening to sentences and understanding those sentences. And then it's the language they speak and they're making sense of it. And then our other condition is they listen to sounds that make no sense, uh, but which are acoustically matched to the sentences. So then you kind of, you get a network of activation and you might be able to fractionate that further, but you can kind of say, okay, well, these are the brain areas that absolute bare minimum are what are being recruited when you listen to speech and you understand it over and above just hearing sounds. So that's a kind of an approach to saying I want to target particular brain areas. One of the things that's very, very difficult about that kind of approach is what comparisons do you use? And in fact, when I was first, you know, working in this area in the 90s, it wasn't at all unusual for people to use the condition rest as the baseline. So they yeah. would put people into the scanner and then some conditions say, just empty your mind, do nothing. Now, you know, just try that on yourself unless you are some, you know, grade 10 level yogi who got expert meditation skills. It's actually very, very difficult to empty your mind. And we slowly came to realize that what we were calling rest actually is your mind just freewheeling, daydreaming, worrying about doing the shopping. Um, and, you know, I might need to have a wee, my bladder's filling up. The old brain scans used to take a long time. And so then people started to say that, well, actually, that's quite interesting. So the people started actually taking these scans and they didn't bother with the activation scans for something more, you know, how do memory systems work? They would just say, well, let's ask questions about this. So you can just scan somebody in this resting state mode, as they call it. And it's just called resting state because it's come from this condition we used to call rest. And now we're not saying, oh, empty your mind. We're just saying, well, you know, let's look at the brain freewheeling. And when you look at the brain freewheeling, what you get is obviously all sorts of different brain areas start to get activated and they start to get activated in all kinds of random orders because people can think whatever they want. But what it lets you do is say, let's identify different networks within this. So what you're doing is you're identifying networks based on brain areas that are co-activated. So it doesn't matter if when they are activated is fairly random and not comparable across people, if they are co-activated whenever they are activated, it lets you start to look at these patterns of connectivity. And then when you do that, you find that actually, and then you can use something called, um, here I think they've used independent components analysis, and that just lets you say, well, look, obviously there's loads and loads and loads of brain areas and loads and loads and loads of ways that they can be correlated in their activity with each other. And this just lets you impose a structure on that pattern of correlations by looking at how the correlations group so it's the statistical technique for sort of identifying structure in what might appear to be like unfathomably random it actually says well look there are these networks so when they talk about frontoparietal connections what they mean is these functional connections that you're defining by the co-activation in the resting state and they seem to show a different pattern of grouping from other networks. So they are particularly interested in here in this network that we think is something to do with cognitive control because it's showing up as being different in these older people. But it's not based on getting people to do a task. It's based on just looking at the brain freewheeling and then looking at these patterns. And it is, it's, it's an interesting way of looking at differences across brains because it lets you say, well, I, I don't care about how particular tasks, you know, making someone do something drives particular systems. I'm just going to look at like the, the basic, not, wiring isn't quite it because you're not looking at the hardware, you're still looking at the kind of the, the, the brain's functional activity. But that functional activity is not one big gloopy mass of soup. There's actually structure within this and you're, you're pulling it out that way. So that, that's what they're talking about here. I think that's cleared up quite a lot for me because I was, I mean, I was I was worried about a number of things there. I, I couldn't quite see what the relationship was between this thing called bilateral connectivity yeah. between the right and left and the sort of measurement of, you mm. know, cognitive function and decline. But I think to put it in my own slightly kind of bold terms, it seems to me that what we're, you're saying is it's rather like if we cast your mind back a couple of episodes when we were looking at um, bird vision mm. and movement, and it wasn't so much that um, in that research that scientists the, were finding that birds were 
targeting objects and moving towards them or using them as the kind of substance of memory. It's that they were looking at differentials in memory and brain activity, parallax movement, and that it was actually the relative movement between various neuronal goings-on in the bird's brain that accounted for their memory of where things were. And in similarly here, I think we're saying that it's, if I've got this right, it's the sort of differentials between um, networks and areas in the brain in its freewheeling state that tell you something about its relative health. That's exactly right. So it's it's not an absolute measure and you can't, in this sort of task, say, well, therefore it means they do this. But it's letting you say there is at some global level this a difference in the strength and the kind of degree of this pattern of functional connectivity that seems to be different in these two groups but I think that then does bring us to the other aspect of this question because we say well it's stronger in these people it's stronger in these people who are sort of between 95 and 103 with all their faculties intact but who do you compare them to? Well exactly that I mean (laughs) interesting it's like this is where let's immediately bring in I mean you know we'll come back to it in a different way but the essay that I gave you to read or one of them by Michel de Montaigne called There is a Season for Everything. I'll say a bit more about Montaigne later on, but in this lovely 16th century essay, he says something that is quite shocking for us to read now, but he does it quite wittily. He says, you know, why do you want to go on learning new languages? (laughs) (laughs) You know, learning Greek into your eighth and ninth decades, for goodness sake, you've earned a rest. (laughs) If you carry on learning, how can you actually kind of execute anything? You'll always be practising. You never get anywhere. <laughs> it's quite funny. It's quite a good point. But in a yes. way, he's he's making this point about comparison. At, at what point, you know, to, to whom is it appropriate that an 80 or 90 or 100-year-old should compare themselves in terms of cognitive function? Yeah. What, what is it we expect and why do we expect it? It starts to unpack some of the real complexities about what we mean by this. And I think it is actually very consistent with what you've just said about Montaigne's apparently abrasively unpopular view nowadays that you shouldn't continue trying to do things. <laughs> it's very interesting because they actually say in the, in the abstract of the paper, so this is the actual published paper, um, that centenarians without dementia can be considered as a model of successful aging and resistance against age-related cognitive decline. I was really shocked by that. Well, like, so I think it's really, I think I think it's quite shocking. Well, it's shocking in a number of ways because it's culturally very insular to say that. It's really it, you know, it just absolutely applies to one particular very Western way of looking at the world. I mean, frankly, if you go to a lot of equatorial cultures, they see us running around and they think we're mad. <laughs> You know, I think it's a mad way to behave. Well, it's certainly, it certainly you makes you think, well, hang on. So everybody who is not sharp as a tack at the age of 100 has somehow failed. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. failed at ageing. I'm afraid you've done ageing badly, my friend. And it's just really kind of breathtaking. <laughs> but also, of course, what you actually want to know is what's the comparison with themselves. Because what they yeah. do is they take younger people in their 70s and 80s who don't show signs of dementia. Um, And then they do the same thing with them. So what they're actually finding is a network that is stronger or different across two very different groups of people because they're different in age. They've tried to match for everything else, but that's, you know, the matching for everything else is a pretty hard one to achieve. And if you want to really change a brain, one of the things that, I'm sorry, Montaigne is true, is that it is learning to do things. Experience is one of the yeah. things that has a massive influence on the brain. I can remember someone a while ago saying, oh, pornography does terrible things to the brain. And I was like, well, if that's what you're worried about, wait till you find out about reading, because man yeah. alive, does that change your brain? Or oh, learning to play a musical instrument, or oh, learning to play multiple languages, you know, a lot, learning a sport, all sorts of things will influence your brain. So you just, it, it's actually very, very hard to do. What you'd want to know really would be to take a group of people and then if you really want to know the answer to this, keep doing this paradigm where you just scan their brain and look at these patterns of connectivity and these functional networks repeatedly as they age and then see how that varies as a time course for any one person and as they either you know, age in a way that involves some aspects of dementia or not, then what does that look like? You know, Because that's actually what you mean. Um, 
so you, you, it's only really the comparison in your own life that has some sort, you know, you are your own control in that way. Well, well, and indeed, this is actually, I think that's what Montaigne is saying too. He's not really saying don't do new things. Yeah. He's saying what you have to think about very carefully is what's appropriate to your life yeah. and where you see yourself in relationship to your environment. And if you go into that in greater depth, you will find the study that's appropriate to your circumstances and that will refresh your sense of the world and keep you going. Because as it happens, although this doesn't come into any of the essays I sent you, uh, the very last sentence of the last chapter in um, his essays um, is a very kind of touching line about the fear of senile dementia. Mm. You know, he was very, very aware of all the various things that could sort of go wrong for someone living, you know, at the latter end of the 16th century in the middle of the wars of religion. And he knew that he'd had a, you know, very generous allotted span. But the one, his great fear of old age was, of course, losing his, losing his marbles. And um, he, he doesn't say that you should submit to the inevitable and just wait for things to decay. Rather, he says, there's a very interesting, um, the business of choosing the occupation that will refresh your mind is yeah. itself a serious one. And often it's, it's that classic thing of wanting to go deeper into something that already exists rather than widening your focus and, um, as it were, panicking in an intellectual sense. Yeah. And finding a new thing that refreshes your desire but doesn't doesn't necessarily lead you somewhere new which is a different way of looking at this problem i absolutely take your point that it's very well attested that if you do learn a new language or pick up a musical instrument at any age it it seems to have a beneficial um you know uh, cognitive effect but there is another way of looking at yeah. new activity which is, is which is that it's giants refreshed it's old activity returned to So you'll often hear, oh, musicians uh, have fewer problems, under, you know, hearing as they get older, or people who speak multiple languages have fewer instances of, de of uh, dementia. Actually, it's very, very hard to demonstrate anything that is beneficial to your brain about literacy or playing musical instrument or learning multiple languages above and beyond the fact that you have literacy, you can play yeah, musical instrument, yeah. which is, is an mean. end in itself. So it's actually, um, I mean, man, alive. Yes, I don't mean, I didn't really mean beneficial. It's, it's, more, yeah. it's more that sense that you have that it's, it, it comes back to this notion of rest. If you, yeah. want to preserve, if you want to preserve the cognitive status quo, yeah. then these are good things to do. I'm trying to avoid this suggestion that you, you, all you need to do is, you know, uh, a bit of brain training and you've got no more worries that the, the other thing is we do know there are some things that are catastrophic for your brain in a very general sense and they're actually if anything the things that are much harder to to do so we one of the worst things that can happen to your brain is to be lonely is to be mm. removed from contact with other people now because contact with other people can mean a lot of different things i'm not saying well if you can't go and play bridge three times a week that's it you know lie down this is this is over uh, you know it can mean it, it doesn't have to be something that's you know like intense or involves puzzles or anything just just ha the strength of your social network is has a very very positive effect on your brain and it's the absence of that that you see in loneliness and you get and I apologize if I've mentioned this before but there's now a very strongly clear relationship between in fact the single biggest preventable treatable risk factor for dementia is uncorrected hearing loss in people yeah. who could hear and then lost their hearing because if you don't get hearing aids or you don't use them when you've got them it becomes very difficult to talk to people so you, you've introduced a thing into your life that will be a barrier to these social contacts so that's actually very hard to square with a lot of the things we try to be chipper about like you know ooh, you know keep busy learn a language because we don't think of the social stuff as being important but of course it's critically important and it's a good example of how you know any 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 suggestion or directive or activity 
uh, has lots of sort of contingent things attached to it. You know, you can want to learn a language or play an instrument, but there are these other sort of physical, biological things happen to your body that are that are very significant in that mix. And actually, that's also part of what Montaigne, I think, is interested in, in his general worldview. Yeah. You know, there's, there's what you can know about the world in, you know, through its creatures and through the things that are made, whether you think they're made by God or made by man, um, through your environment, through different languages, through different disciplines, um, through different books, through politics, through manners, all of which he's interested in. And then there's, then there's a limit to all that. And the limit is set um, by personality. The limit is set by, um, you know, disposition and things that are actually very, very difficult to still, the whole of psychology and neuroscience is predicated on the fact that these things are almost imponderable. So they're actually very, very hard to measure. <laughs> you know, and he, and he was on to this in the 17th century, uh, the late 16th century. He, he was really interested in the fact that both in religion and in rational inquiry, there seemed to be a limit to, you know, universal truths, things that you could establish as, you know, put down as um, things that were true in all cases, facts, if you like, and proofs. And similarly, that there was a real limit to what you could say about individual subjectivity, mm. about your own disposition. And he was most unusually in that age, very open to the sort of productive limits of looking at both those things. You know, so he knew that people who believed, you know, writing in the middle of the wars of religion, that people who believed very much in the you know, Catholic faith, uh, that a big element of you know, evangelism abroad and exploration and taking the word of God out you know, catastrophically in some cases, you know, or classically to America, was about trying to make a partial experience of religion in one corner of the world universal, trying to make it true for all people in all cases, because otherwise it just became something that had happened to you and your town and your faith. And, you know, why should it really mean anything to people who had not heard the word of God? Mm. So that was the impulse, to make something partial and local and parochial, universal. And he saw that that was a big problem, you know, politically, culturally, and, and philosophically for religion. But similarly, he also saw that um, to know yourself, to know one very, very small um, section of society, down to one individual well, was in some sense to know the whole of society. Mm because we have so many factors in common. And that if you really got to know yourself well, and he called, you know, he has said this marvelous thing about his essays that, you know, I am myself the subject of my book. What he meant was that to really get to know his place in society and in intellectual tradition was in a way to come to know a lot of other people as well. A lot of people you've never even met. You know, the study of what used to be called individual differences was, you know, the study of personality. Why are people different from each other? Why are we, you know, why is one person like this and someone else like that? Now, and do you remember that? It's a horrible story. That man who took himself off to Las Vegas a few years ago and stayed happily for a week gambling, eating, and then at the last day of his stay, got out an enormous amount of weaponry and just started murdering people at a rock concert nearby. Yeah. And no one had seen anything any point to suggest any of this is going to happen and we still don't know why he did it and that to me like i said to my partner you know psychology really we've really failed haven't we because we're not even close we're not even close mm. to be able to say why does anyone do anything that's an extreme example but actually you know it occurs fine grained you know kind of to, to large-scale stuff we really do still struggle with this and there are a handful of things where we've got closer they still don't necessarily you know the, the we and i'm sure there will be people giving lots of examples where I'm wrong on this, but generally, we, you know, a lot of, you know, why crimes exist remain hard for us to explain, for example. Isn't one of the reasons, and again, forgive me if I'm saying something a bit obvious, but, you know, isn't one of the reasons that, you know, we, we live in bodies that obey a kind of 
uh, and to some extent have minds that obey a physically a, a linear times arrow um, progress. You know, we're born, we grow up, we get older, mm. then we die. It goes yes. in one direction. But of course, the problem with the mind is it doesn't just go in one direction. It goes in several directions. And I think this very, very strong urge we have to detect causality comes a cropper when you look at precisely that kind of case. Although, although, although the, the man in, in, in Las Vegas, although at the same time, I have to say that what's interesting about that is that there's often more causality than we might suspect at a kind of lower degree of, of, of shocking variance between, yeah. between things and activities that appear to have no relation. Actually, when you go into it closer, you see that the reason why somebody did X and then left the country or someone got married to you know, Z and then um, was discovered to have a kind of phantom life with about sort of, you know, five other families. That's none of it's quite as surprising when you go to indeed into into further contingent background detail. It depends how it depends how narrow you want the focus to be in terms of causality. But for things where there are very, very shocking distinctions of behaviors like that, I think partly you have to say there are always going to be extraordinary anomalies that are not amenable to analysis. And I think your point about the granularity is really important here because what we tended to look for are these big things. And for example, something that just seemed to have come out very, very, very robustly and right across the board, so across cultures, across time, um, and, in, and even down to sort of neurophysiological level and you know, it's a genetic component, the extroversion-introversion dimension does seem to be probably real it's it's a thing on which people do fairly comfortably vary and you can pick up other things that correlate with it um although if you make introverts do more extrovert things they do get more extroverted and vice versa so there's some flexibility to it but that and then a lot of the other personality traits that have sort of formed these and they can be pretty robust but the really important thing about personality traits is you rate yourself you fill out the questionnaire about yourself and it does seem that some of the other ones, um, like agreeableness, how agreeable are you? It doesn't actually have very good predictive value because no. people tend to think they're agreeable. And it doesn't necessarily tell you anything about how agreeable they're going to very, be. Very interesting. And, and actually, um, again, I, I admit, um, you know, Mr. Montaigne yeah. to, our, to our discussions here, because in another one of those little essays, a very funny one, I think, called "On Not Pretending to Be Ill." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's he, he this marvelous discussion, really, and it's really of this thing that you've just pointed to about about you know, blindness to one's own actual personality. Because yeah. what he's talking about, to begin with, he starts with something that looks very biological, and it looks to be just about behaviour. It's about how people who feign. Um, say, having gout or a limp or, um, you know, some condition in order to, there's a goal attached to it, in order to get out of something, to avoid someone or to sort of, you know, um, you know to duck and dive. There's, there's a social reason for them, faint, you know, to, to avoid their relatives or some nightmare person. They, you know, mm -hmm. they suddenly pretend they've got a limp and they, oh, I can't get to that meeting. I'm terribly sorry. I'm, you know, stuck at home. I'm, I'm ill. Uh, he, he notices the way in which people who feign these things sometimes go on to actually acquire <laughs> those conditions. Um, and it's a, it's a sort of rather um, minatory little piece, but it's, but it's quite funny. But then it takes a bit of a left turn because that's about someone, you know, someone pretending to be something knows they're pretending. Yeah. And then he takes the case of people who are, it, it just opens out, he does it very, very subtly. He begins talking about blindness uh, in the same way. People who sort of, you know, cover up one eye, pretend to be blind, and then actually become blind in that eye. And then he says, there's another kind of blindness, mm. which is blindness to our true condition. <laughs> and yeah. this is a marvellous link, which is the, the point you are making about agreeableness, really, and about the, the fact that there are certain things that aren't to do with awareness, 
but are absolutely to do with our kind of sentient faculties. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very lovely segue uh, and development. And he links it, or rather it is linked to some of his religious thinking. I mean, he's, he, he, for many, many centuries, he was sort of held up as the great proto-rationalist. In fact, he was, you know, a very devout Catholic too. Mm. And there's... This relationship between the the feigned impairment and the actual condition we have to which we are blind has an obvious connection to those traits of character that we think we can manipulate, virtues and vices, Mm. and those things that are much more distinctively true of us that we can't see but which other people can. I'm always struck by how how much overlap there is between what we bring to these discussions. But I was really, really struck by this. It was quite extraordinary. Yeah. And as you say, just the on one hand, these very clever, funny essays, um, sort of without an ounce of fat on them, they're just sort of perfect things. Um, but actually, having tremendous relevance across a number of different aspects of well, life now. It yeah. Was yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was, look, I, I, I could just bang on about Montaigne for ages, but I, I just, to, to listeners who are, who are interested, the essays of Michel de Montaigne, you know, he's sometimes you know, called a philosopher, but in a way that's not true. He is every man. He was a gentleman. You know, he had money. He was in the Parlement de Bordeaux and he, you know, he sold his sort of seat there at the age of 30 and then decided he was going to be a sort of gentleman of leisure and just study and sort of nurture his mind and his intellectual capacities. And and it kind of all went wrong for him, you know, because he got back to his castle and his library and, you know, where he had all these lovely sort of classical maxims written on the wall. And he sort of really had a nervous breakdown. And it was partly to do with loss of activity, but it was also to do with grief. You know, he'd lost all his children. They'd all died. Apart from his beloved daughter, but he'd lost his son and heir. He'd been a soldier. He'd been a magistrate. He'd seen uh, action. He knew what war was like. And he was a very brilliant, commonsensical rationalist who didn't fit into any of the available boxes. He is Mm. absolutely a one-off. And the essays are the best bedside companion you could possibly have. They will keep you going all your life. They're about everything under the sun. They're about thumbs. They're about, you know, heroes from the past. They're about history and politics. They're about other people and other cultures. They are completely extraordinary in every respect. There is nothing like them anywhere else. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I, I just find it immensely moving mm. that this person in such a fundamentalist era could come to such a modest acceptance both of the you know the the the, the sort of ideology of his times and also you know but could also sort of develop himself so well and so humbly in the face of all that ideological and theological aggressiveness it's an, it's an it's an amazing thing so the last essay that we both looked at is on age and i said a little bit earlier about him you know worrying about losing his faculties and, and and becoming demented and that's how he ends the last essay on experience but the one on age is shorter and it contains what i think is a beautiful contradiction because on the one hand he feels that you should be able to see pretty clearly from quite a young person what they're capable of you know, he says more or less by the age of 20, there should be some evidence of all that, you know, you know, we can do with our lives, which is rather a sort of <laughs> something like <laughs> quite an alarming, alarming position to take. But then again, he says that, you know, you should go on uh, extending your working life and your vocations and employments, as he called them, you know, far beyond the sort of the age that's set down for those for that century, which is around about 45 or 50, says, why not 60? Why not as long as you possibly can go on? So, he, And I like the fact that he embraces that sort of contradiction. He, he's never quite what you think he is. 
when you think he's saying something that doesn't chime with our, you know, the way we see things now, you have to look again and you have to slightly reset your cultural lens and you realise that actually what he's saying is rather more generous and challenging than you thought. And that's one of the things he's very, very good on is the fact that we see things partially according to the times we live in. And that's one of the reasons that it's quite difficult for there to be such a thing as universal truth. Yeah. Because truths tend to be corrupted by cultures as they change and shift. And it's actually very hard to preserve information, which is true. If you ask people what what side would you have been in the uh, you know in the civil war in america people tend to think oh they're definitely i definitely have been very much against uh, slavery but do you know what statistically it's yeah. extremely unlikely that you would be you know yeah, because yeah. There was a, well and, there was... and also there's a kind of there's there's all sorts of cultural cognitive dissonance about that because they might say that but on the same time they're not terribly interested maybe in they don't want to they don't want to pay more tax. They certainly want to pay yeah. more council tax. And it's your council tax that pays for library services, yes. Yes. all of which are closing. Yeah, yeah, so, no, absolutely. you know, absolutely. It's, it, we're, that's part of that blindness thing that he's very interested yeah. in. What do we do in our societies and our cultures to which we are blind? The other thing that links, I think, both the, um, the scientific paper journal article and the research paper behind it and the Montaigne is this sense of what happens to um, anxiety which is a different kind of sort of mental activity in old age and um, Mm. Montaigne says you know he has that very he has that he has that view of the, the good old age and to a certain extent the good death that is very much of its time, of the Renaissance, late Renaissance, uh, which sees age as an ideally as an end to worry, you an yeah. end to anxiety about um, money, uh, you know, health, um, erudition, achievements, honours. Uh, this is the time when you can put all that down, and this is a subject that comes up again and again in the literature of the period, um, in part because it's so vanishingly unlikely that anyone will reach a particularly old age unless they have really quite, um, you know, a lot of money and people to look after them. Mm. Uh, and I think that's something that that is in the hinterland of the scientific paper too, because, you know, doing new things presupposes a sort of condition behind the general mental state which allows you to do them do you see what i mean a sort of um yeah. you, you you are yeah, able absolutely. to countenance doing these things because you haven't got a whole set of anxieties about your health and you know whether you can get from a to b whether you can pick up an instrument and to the, and i think that's that's very much in the piece but it's not really addressed by the writers and I think it's quite an important one, mm. our, our, our background condition as ageing people. There was a, a, a in discussion with the, or an interview with the um, authors, one of the authors in the Psychology Today article about the academic article on ageing. And they, um, they said, oh, why, why? why? Why do these people have these different networks? And I think the guy says something like, um, you know, you can probably promote them by exercise. And I thought, Really? I mean, seriously, do we know that? Because I don't know if we do know that. I don't know if this is a, here is sort of quite an abstract concept of what this connectivity actually means and how you could promote it. Um, and we know exercise is good for you, but that's not, you know, the, the, the link here is not, um, is not easy. And of course, it is hard. It's hard. If there really is some utility to this network being strengthened as be age, well, what would it mean and how would you get there and how could we possibly even start to think of it as a way that would fit with your life?
there, there's an idea that someone was saying on this podcast that you, you need to think about your life as a process. Like this, you're never a done deal, but a process isn't a series of discrete, entirely separate events. It's something that you know. If you are a process, then that's the thing that evolves, and the way that yeah. things evolve is not going to be randomly through this available search space. It will be constrained by the path you've already taken yeah. and who you are. They, these are things we. We accrete this throughout our life. We can't, you know, you can't get to the age of 80 and then say, well, do you know what? I'm going to try all this again. You know, life isn't a randomized control trial. So yeah. it isn't as infinitely flexible as it sometimes could sound. Well, that, I mean, that's true. And, and that actually is, is, is precisely, you know, Montaigne's position. He thinks that, he thinks that being alive, self, if you like, is a flowing and rather kind of turbulent thing. It's not, it, it's, you know, you don't ever arrive at a condition, you know, socially, intellectually, yeah. politically. It just, it, that's not the way life is. Uh, it, and it's part of a, it's part of a Hellenistic view, a uh, philosophical view of the world where the universe is flux, you know, it's, and, and everything is always becoming. I think Aristotle calls it entelechia. Uh, mm. And the two things go go along with each other because on the one hand everything is always becoming itself, but it does move towards some end. It has a sort of uh, uh, you know telos an, an end, and and things are obviously designed for a purpose, and they become more and more themselves as they reach the, as they fulfil that purpose. And that, of course, is one way of looking at the way characteristics operate in a life. Uh, you know, we sometimes say of ourselves, and I think it's true mm -hmm. that people become more and more themselves. One of the one of the interesting things from a sort of literary point of view about the notion of always trying new things is that it's freighted with lots of dramatic irony because we can all think of cases in literature and indeed in real life in which the very people who keep going on about how much they've changed <laughs> are the ones who stay resolutely the same. <laughs> you know, I remember there's, I think Clive James had a very funny thing about Jane Fonda going on about this. You, you know, I really, I just, I've changed so much. I mean, he says, you know, the people who go on telling you how much just, this has never really changed at all. And I, there's some truth in that. My, my partner's a clinical psychologist and he has a rule of thumb, which is people generally say the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> of what they mean in those sorts of situations. If it seems confusing, flip it round, and then you'll find it probably makes a great deal yeah. more sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's that is that is another kind of blindness, isn't it? I mean, there's there's an there's another kind that occurs to me that it might mm. be useful in our current circumstance to mention. You know, here we are in tier four, really not coming out of the pandemic. I think we've got all the doctors that I speak to say we've got quite a few more months of this and it's going to be very hard, particularly the next couple of months. Yeah. Um, there will be an end to it and, uh, and, and probably aspects of the world will look quite, quite different when we come out of it. But at the same time, in the midst of um, very, very straightened um, circumstances, it is also true, you know, as, as your partner would attest, that some of the things that are very, very, very difficult about lockdown, isolation, um, having to sort of make do with less and certainly less company, can have some beneficial effects too. Counterintuitively, the things that are often, you know, experientially difficult in life bear fruit in mm. unexpected ways, or they open doors to, you know, perception and meditation um, that might otherwise have been, uh, you know, stayed closed because you'd be usefully distracted by, you know, a welter of day-to-day -day activity. And I, and I don't know whether you found this, but, um, I mean, I don't think there's anything in, in, in the sort of macro sense comforting about lockdown at all. It's, you know, many people have died. It's, it's extremely, mm. we are in the mid of a full-scale public health emergency globally. But at a granular level, it is nonetheless true and useful to remember that we, there are a surprising number of opportunities to adapt on the very, very small local scale. 
And I have found that not being able to go out really at all has made me look at some of the things like Montaigne that I've carried with me through my life that I don't use enough, mm. that I don't explore enough. And they have come back to me as new interests, you know, refreshed by years of non-use. One of them is music. Yes. I've just been listening to music in a completely, in, in, in a, with, with a wonderful sense of it in the midst of this silence, this eerie silence in the streets. Music has come back to me not just as a pastime, but as a way of communicating, communicating with myself and with people who aren't necessarily here anymore. And I mm -hmm. found it incredibly moving and restorative. I've started... I've got a little keyboard at home and I've started playing again. I haven't played for years. Mm. I've started writing little bits of music. I'm no good at it, really, but I've done it anyway because it pleases me so to do. And it, it just proves the thing that I know you said to me when we first met, actually, we were talking about memory, that memory is a dynamic process. Mm. And, and a lot of what we remember is to do with how we how we address it physically in the present and just playing on the keyboard puts me, not doesn't just put me back in touch with who I was, but changes my sense of who that person was. And some of my views about, you know, there was some regret about not having done music. Well, now I'm doing it. Yeah. And I do have the circumstances to thank for that. It is valuable to think about what we've learned over this year because it has been awful and dreadful, just simply dreadful for so many people, absolutely horrible. Um, but I think one of the things that I'm not but, but you know, despite that, but you know, this is there are some genuinely extraordinary aspects of this, like the, the fact that most people have been, you know. We, there aren't many things that happen where you really feel like we are all in this. This is everybody's being affected. A couple of you know kind of prominent people, somewhat less occasionally, but you know mostly. There's been a and that's not been something that's felt like a. I feel like a sort of unified sense of the British people are acting as one. It was more like a kind of sense of we're coping, we're adapting, we're finding ways of dealing with things. So that's that's been interesting, and I think my. Um, one of my colleagues wants to describe me as like the extrovert, extrovert. <laughs> and I do realize, <laughs> oh no, I, I lie. He is afraid pathologically sociable. Um, and it has, it's hard, it's hard. But then you find other, you know, I, I, you know, we all miss these things. But then, and stuff like, um, and I apologize if I've mentioned this before, but they had a, there was a showing of Jesus Christ Superstar at the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre, which is a musical Hector and I and Tom are very fond of. So we went to that. And the first time they came out, because it was a socially distanced audience and performance, and they all came out all spread out on the stage during the overture. And then when the lights came on and went, duh, 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 and they tore off their masks. And I simply started crying. And I never cry. I was properly sobbing. I was completely overwhelmed by the fact that people were somehow finding a way <laughs> of putting on some form of performance and it was brilliant it was absolutely brilliant and I think that's the other thing uh, I mean you know we had the opportunity to do that we were lucky enough to live in London and to be able to get there and to be able to afford to do it and we went as often as we we could afford to do until you know these things weren't available anymore and it, I treasured it I absolutely treasured it it's one of my happiest memories and to have that to think about is a positive thing yeah I think so I mean I think just it's such an obvious caveat to put in I don't mean to put a down on it but I mean I think we're both we're both describing you know experiences there that come out of the fact that in my case you know I have a room in which I can sit down at a keyboard and you know do that and that you know you had that fantastic experience at Regent's Park because you could you know yeah, go there with your go. partner and yeah. your and, and your child and I think the the thing that is still not really talked about uh, well, it's it's not a question of still, it just has never been talked about enough in the whole pandemic, and in this country in particular, is its impact on millions of people who live with their families, you know, mm. in 
small environments, you know, uh, in raised accommodation where getting out and or going from one room to another is just not it's not meaningful. You know, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't have a meaning. And I think that it is um Right down to the kind of news feeds of people standing in streets clapping the NHS, which I have problems with for another reason, you know, which I won't, which would expose no. my, my, my political feelings and now is maybe <laughs> not the place to do it. You know, the, the fact is, if you stand at a window or go out onto a street and clap, it's because you live on a street where you can get onto the street and stand on a pavement and clap. Yes. You know, yes, and I actually, that. Yeah. most people don't. No. No. And no one, in my memory, has ever bothered pointing that out on the news. And it's a disgrace. No, it's just a disgrace. <laughs> but, you know, it's just a disgrace. The bigger picture is it's just unspeakable. I mean, I've watched my mother go from someone who was just about holding on to the edges of some sort of normal life. And that's, that's it. I don't think when we come out of the, um, you know, come out of the lockdown finally... And she's she's not going to be able to cope, you know. Mm. We've lost her to dementia in this time, and I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened anyway. But watching her completely unmoored by all the normal things that give you structure in your life, mm. all mm. of them going, structure and meaning and a routine, um, and they're fantastically good for your brain. And they've all yeah. just been taken away from her, and that story must just be. You know, being told a thousand times up and down the line for a hundred thousand times, it's awful. It's a, you know, we will, we will be forever changed. And it's dreadful. <laughs> it's dreadful, but, <laughs> but I think, but, 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 we, but, we, but we end then, I think, with Michel de Montaigne again, because he yeah. says that one of the points, one of the purposes of, you know, talking about these things and studying them as we get older and our lives become whether it's because of disease and disease after all and particularly bubonic plague was still very much a thing in the 16th century whether it, whether our circumstances are straightened because of some you know viral pathogen or whether it's because our, our bodies fail us in other ways one of the reasons for keeping going with study and interesting ourselves in the world about us is that it equips us better to deal with um, constraint and um, being old and mm. maybe not seeing so many people. This is one of the reasons for doing it. It keeps you, it's really about uh, facing one's situation, mm. you know, as a, as a frail human being. And I think for that reason, again, the essays are incredibly inspiring. They're very, very inspiring. They are you sometimes see a chapter called on age, on infirmity, and you think, oh dear, what's this going to tell me? And oh, this is a bit worrying. I'm not sure. I, I want, I'd, I'd rather read a Lee Child, you know, or <laughs> whatever. But the surprising result is that they're accessible and they speak honestly to everyone's condition. And yeah. they're extremely comforting. That's probably something that we all need going into 2021. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We've been the Neuromantics, and we'll be back next time talking about, I think, distraction. Yes, distraction. Distract yourselves until then, and we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.